Today, we're going to be looking at an announcement of good news at, as it is made by an angel. And I was giving this a little bit more thought this week in thinking about the fact that whatever we perceive as good news is often in correlation to whatever we perceive is our greatest need. So let me give you a couple examples. If you feel like, you know, you're one of our college students and you did not do as well on your final exam as you, have, as you hoped, whenever the professor says, I'm grading on a curve, I'm adding 10 points to everybody's exam, that is good news, right? Will claps, um, even though I know he did awesome on his final exams, right? But that's, that's perceived as good news. Why? Because the great need is some help on your final exam. Uh, whenever you're running late for work and you can't find your car keys anywhere and, you know, you're huffing around and your spouse says, I found them. That's good news. Why? Because your greatest perceived need in that moment is uh, to be at the meeting that you're supposed to be at 10 minutes before. And somehow God has given your spouse a unique gift to find things that would have been right in front of your face if you were looking. I don't know if anybody else can relate to that, but I'm, I'm there, right? It is good news whenever you're trying to get into the playoffs and the Bengals beat the Vikings in overtime, right? There we go. Uh, that's my Bengals reference for the day. I'll get it out here so I don't do it later when things are more serious. Um, it's, it's good news, right, whenever you've done all your Christmas shopping and things are feeling a little bit tight and your checking account uh, kind of looks like your shoe size and you're like, oh, payday's coming, like, and it hits, and man, that's good news. Well, what we find in this passage is that the angel is going to say, I bring you good news of great joy, speaking to the shepherds. And I want to almost reverse the correlation that we just created, right? If God is saying, this is good news for all people, then the reverse would be, if that is good news, then what is my greatest need? If the good news of Christ's birth, who is Savior, Christ, and Lord, is good news, the best news that impacts the entire world, then what must be our greatest need? Well, our greatest need must be for a Savior who is Christ, who is the Lord, right? Because our, our understanding of good news always corresponds to our greatest need. But if God is saying this is the best news anyone could ever receive, then obviously our greatest need is for a Savior who enters the world that He created. It's interesting as we look at this third week of Advent, right here in Luke 2, we lit the third candle of Advent. You'll notice that it is pink, a little bit brighter than purple. And that's because this is the candle that symbolizes joy, the joyous message that would be proclaimed from the angel's mouth to these lowly shepherds. And it is by no mistake that this message came at the darkest point of night, that in the same way that Christ, the light of the world, entered the world to illuminate the darkness, Christ has come to bring joy to all who know him. It's my desire in our time together that your takeaway from Luke 2, 8 through 20 would be this, that the good news of Jesus brings us great joy. And this isn't a kind of joy that comes from burying your head in the sand and completely ignoring the circumstances around you. This isn't a kind of joy that is some sort of um, ignorance is bliss kind of joy. This is a deep-seated joy that can only come from the good news that is that Jesus came. 
Now, just to bring you up to speed, if this is your first week with us, uh, thankfully, this is probably a story that most people are, are fairly familiar with. Uh, what we saw last week is that Mary and Joseph journeyed to Bethlehem, about 100 miles away from Nazareth, where they were from, and they came here because Caesar Augustus wanted to tax the entire known world. Well, that's kind of why they came. Really, it's because God moved the heart of Caesar Augustus to require this registration of the entire world so that ultimately the prophecy that came from the pen of Micah would come to pass. And so they, they go to Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 is fulfilled. The Messiah is born in Bethlehem. And then what Luke is going to do is he's going to shift from our scene at the manger where the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, is laid in a manger, and he's going to take us out into the middle of the field. Why would he do that? Well, it is so that you and I would see that the good news of Jesus brings great joy. Pick up with me in Luke 2, verses 8 through 20. We'll read 8 through 14. We'll, we'll do the rest in a little bit. God's word says this, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Father God, glory to you in the highest. Uh, we recognize that you are great, you are glorious, and you are above all. And we thank you that you would appear, you would make yourself known, you would reveal yourself through your Son to those as lowly as us that we might have a personal relationship with you. Lord, remind us of that truth. For some in the room, reveal that truth to them, that you personally care for them. Uh, we're grateful that you've given us your word, that we may know you better. Open our ears, speak to our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. In this passage, the, the first thing that I want to focus on is the message that is given by the angel. The message brings good news of great joy. Now, imagine the transition here. Uh, we have the focus on Mary and Joseph in verse 12. They're looking over this baby boy that has just been born. And unexpectedly, Luke takes us out into a dark field in the midst of shepherds. Now, the setting of the angel's appearance, we're told in verse 8, is in the same region. So we know this isn't far away from wherever the manger would have been. This is kind of in the fields of Bethlehem. So imagine that Mary and Joseph are uh, kind of in the town, and then uh, you walk out, you, you walk down a path, and in some field nearby there are these group, this group of shepherds there. And an angel appears to them in glorious light. Now, before we consider the message or even what took place, let's consider who receives this message. It's shepherds. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I think to, you know, first century, I think of an agrarian society, and I think shepherds, that's probably a pretty typical job that someone would have. But after doing a little more research, you understand that shepherds held a pretty poor position in society. Uh, Tabidi Anyabwile is a pastor who wrote in his commentary on Luke that shepherding was not glorious work. He says, 
Shepherds had bad reputations, and the nature of their work meant that they could not observe Jewish ceremonial laws. They were considered unreliable to the point that they were not even allowed to give testimony in the Jewish court of law. They were a despised class of people. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's helpful in our understanding of this passage because what we see is that the first people that God chooses to make known the gospel message is some of the most despised people in society, that God declared his glory among the lowly. And what great comfort is that for us, that God in the same way makes his message known to us, not because we're morally perfect, not because we check all the religious boxes, but simply to make us trophies of his grace. The shepherds received this good news, and so can we. And the gospel that declared good news to them is the same gospel that declares good news to us, that the rejected can be accepted, that the unclean by ceremonial standards can become pure in the sight of God, that those who have bad reputations can have those same reputations rewritten by the grace of God. And so we look at the shepherds and in many ways look into a mirror that shows the reality of our own soul. Though we might be lowly in the eyes of others, we have received this great news of God's grace through Christ. We continue through the passage and in verse 9, read that an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. So imagine this dark field suddenly illuminated, right? Like a firework that goes off and doesn't go away. It's just blinding like lightning that cracks in front of your face, but it just creates a blinding light. But it wasn't flame. It wasn't, it wasn't a candle. It wasn't some light that could be explained by any human means. It was the glory of God. Anytime you read in Scripture that the glory of the Lord shone, that's the, that's the visible presence of God made manifest among His creation. We see it in Exodus 16, whenever God leads his people through the wilderness with his glory, it was the light they followed. We see it in Exodus 40 or Psalm 63 too, whenever we read about the tabernacle or the temple being filled with the glory of God. This is the manifest presence of God in the middle of a field with smelly sheep and stinky shepherds. And the glory of the Lord, man, they knew they were impure. Uh, they knew who they were, and so immediately fear filled their hearts. And what does the angel say in verse 10? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Uh, the angel says, fear not. Why? Because this angel was not bringing a message of judgment, as one would expect whenever you see the manifest glory of God. Now, this wasn't a manifest presence, a message that brought judgment. No, this was the presence of God bringing a message of great joy. And so he says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. Now, first I want you to see that the angel is not simply saying, fear not, don't be afraid. It's not simply the removal of fear that takes place when God speaks. It's the replacement of fear with something else, this good news of great joy. And I think that's instructive for us. That whenever God speaks to us, it's not simply fear not. It's not simply the removal of fear. It is the replacement of that fear with facts about who God is. Consider Joshua 1.9. 
Right, so Joshua becomes commander of the people of Israel. The, the mantle of responsibility has now been passed to him. And what does God say? As he's going to lead the people into the promised land, he says, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. But it doesn't end there. There's not a period. There's a comma. God says, for the Lord your God is with you. Right? He's not pumping Joshua up. No, he's saying, don't be afraid because I'm with you. You have an ever-present God walking with you as you lead, lead my people. Think about whenever Paul writes to the persecuted church, or Peter writes to the, the persecuted church in 1 Peter 5. He says, cast your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. And he's not simply saying, hey, cast your anxieties somewhere else. Get them off your mind. No, he's saying, you can lay the full weight of your anxieties, right? Like dig around in your heart, make sure you got them all. And you can lay those upon the giant shoulders of Christ. Why? Because he cares for you. Scripture doesn't just remove fear when God speaks. It replaces it with facts about the Lord. And so if you've been given a task like Joshua, your confidence is the Lord is with you. And for some of you, that role might be in the home as husband, father, wife, mother. For others of you, it's the position that God has given you in the workplace. Maybe it's a ministry calling. You're leading a missional community group. You're one of our elders. Fear is not just driven away. It's replaced. Oh, we, we look at Peter saying, cast your anxieties upon the Lord. And what he's saying is whenever the blistering chill of worry seems to fill your soul, warm yourself by the fire of God's promises, right? He cares for you. And so what is the content that replaces the fear that these shepherds would have first felt? Well, we see that the content is good news of great joy. Uh, the word that is used here for good news is uh, the, the root word euangelizo in the Greek. The word, word here is euangelizomai, which you might hear that and say, oh, that kind of sounds like a word we have in English that is evangelized. So the angel here is he's sharing the gospel with the shepherds. He's saying, I'm bringing you good news of great joy. Now, here are two details that we read about this message. One, it's good news of great joy. Right? Um, we'll focus more on that later. Second, it is to all people. Do you read that right there in verse 10? That it is for all the people? And I love that, right? Because here we're, we're focusing on the lowliness of the shepherd. These despised people, they couldn't even testify in the court of law. They couldn't practice Jewish ceremonial practices because of their uncleanness. And God, God makes his message known to them. But what are we going to find soon as you keep reading? That the wise men come, right? There are kings who also receive this glorious message. It's good news for all people. It's good news for the Jews who would have been familiar with the prophecies that were given throughout the entire Old Testament. And it was good news for the Gentiles who were completely unaware of the promises of God. Let me say this to you. This is good news for the person who grew up in church and doesn't have to use the table of contents whenever I say turn to the book of Luke. But this is good news for the person who stepped foot in a church for the very first time this morning. Because this is God's good news of great joy to all people. This is good news for the former atheist who is believing now that there is a God, but still trying to wrap their head around who Jesus is. 
right? This is an invitational good news for you, and this is good news for the Christian who came in kicking themselves this morning because you would say, I know this is true in my head, but I don't feel it in my heart, and you're discouraged. But this is a good news of great joy to all people. And I think if you look really close in Scripture between the A or the L or the L and the L, you might find your name in there because this is good news for you. Why is this such good news? We have to look no further than the three titles that are given to Jesus here. He is Jesus Christ. Unto you this day is born a child. And who is he? He's the Savior of the world who is Christ the Lord. What is our greatest need, right? Good news corresponds to our greatest need. We are sinners, and what do we need? A Savior. That's who Jesus is. We are enslaved by sin and oppressed often by the ways we've been sinned against. And who is Jesus? He is Messiah. He is the anointed one. He's the deliverer who sets the captives free. We are often, often lost, confused, misguided. And who is Jesus? He's the Lord. He's the king who leads you, the shepherd who feeds you. He loves you. You have to look no further than the three titles given to Jesus here to understand why this is such great news that can bring you immeasurable joy. But I wonder if you see Jesus like that. I think oftentimes we don't. I think as Christians, we can become forgetful. I think as, as a non-Christian, you might be here and you're thinking, I don't, I don't really know that that's the Jesus I've perceived uh, as I've heard the name Jesus. Uh, there's a really helpful story that Pastor Charles Spurgeon tells, uh, and it was about a friend of his who was also a pastor. And he said that this pastor, an older gentleman, would, uh, throughout the week, toward the end of the week, he would make pastoral visits to some of the church members. And uh, one week, he was visiting an older woman, so he dropped by her house. This woman uh, was poor, often had difficulty making her rent. And so the church, seeing this as a need they could meet every month, they would collect money for this woman, and then he would just drop it by the house, and he would uh, say, hey, our church collected this for you to help you make ends meet and just provide rent this month. And so he visited that woman on a Thursday, he dropped by her house, and he knocked on the door. No one came to the door. And he waited a couple moments, you know, said maybe, maybe she's uh, working on something, maybe she just can't hear me over whatever she's doing. Typically, she's at home around this time of day through the week. And so he just knocked again, a little, a little more forcefully this time, knocked on the door. He waited, and, and no one came. So he said, okay, that's fine. You know, he, he takes the envelope. He, he goes back to the church, and a couple days pass. Well, he, he sees her the next Sunday, and he walks up to her, and he says, hey, I, I dropped by the house this week, but you weren't home. And she said, really? I mean, I've, I didn't have much going on this week. I was home this week. Well, what day did you visit? And he said, I visited on a Thursday. She said, what time? He said, around noon. And immediately, she, her face blushed, and she got kind of embarrassed. She said, I was actually home on, on Thursday when you came by. Um, I, I heard you knock on the door. I heard you knock once and then wait a couple more minutes, and then I heard kind of a more forceful knock. But I was afraid to come to the door, and I was afraid to come to the door because I thought that you were the landlord who had come to collect rent, and I didn't have the money to pay. But if I would have known it was you, I would have answered because I would have known that you were bringing that envelope to pay my debt. And I wonder if... Some of you, as Christians, don't run to Christ in moments of difficulty, find devotional time 
more as a chore, find gathering for worship, maybe even to praise the name of Christ as a drudgery because you, you've forgotten who he is. Maybe if you're not a Christian and you've never received Christ, you somehow think because of what you've heard or because, because of just misunderstanding in your own heart that Christ came into the world to make demands of it. But Christ came into the world to pay our debt. Why? Because he is Savior. And what does our Savior do? He lives the life we should have lived. He died the death to take on the penalty that we should have received. And he is able to give us joy because he took upon our judgment as Savior. He doesn't knock at our door making demands. He knocks at our door to pay our debt as Savior, Christ, and Lord. And this message brings us great joy. You continue to walk through this passage, and in verse 12, the angel tells the shepherds how they will find Jesus. Uh, he doesn't give coordinates. He doesn't say, hey, pull this up on your Apple Maps. Uh, he, he, the angel doesn't say, you're going to find this baby that has a halo and glowing skin, right? Uh, unlike some of the portraits that we see. No, Isaiah 53, 2 says that he was very normal looking. So what would be the distinguishing factor? This child, the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, would be laying in a manger, a feeding trough that was typically reserved for animals, not in a palace, but in a humble, lowly manger. And then immediately, as the angel is still speaking, what was one angel speaking now turns to a myriad of angels, a plethos, as it says here, of angels, more than could be counted, all declaring this reality. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. They say, glory to God in the highest. The glory of God is declared in the highest among the lowest. I mean, it reminds me of the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? That whenever God makes his glory known, whenever he reveals himself among his people through his Son, the will of God as it is in heaven becomes a reality on earth. And the angels say, peace. With who? Peace with all of those with, with whom God is well pleased. And who is God well pleased with? It is those who have a personal relationship with him. This can be translated with those that God finds favor with, that he extends his grace upon. And peace can become a reality through the joy that is found only in Jesus for you. You know, it's interesting that peace would be the word used here because as I said last week, Caesar Augustus is the reigning emperor in Rome. And what did he do? One of the most well-known events that took place during his reign, he established the Pax Romana, right, the peace of Rome. But the peace of Rome was different from the peace that the angels are talking about here because the peace of Rome was established with a sword. Caesar Augustus might have established peace in the sense that wars had ceased, but it was an artificial peace. Uh, there's an inscription that is in Asia Minor written about Caesar Augustus that you can still read to this day. And it says this, land and sea have peace. The cities flourish. There is an abundance of all good things. But I want you to see that Caesar's peace was rather hollow. 
It was an appearance of peace. It was just a facade that was created by military power and political positioning. It was a kind of peace that said, you better get in line or face the fatal consequences kind of peace. But that's not the same peace that the angels were declaring to the shepherds here. No, they were declaring a peace that came straight from the source of peace, a kind of peace that can only exist as it is proclaimed from the throne room of God, purchased by the blood of Christ. This is why the prophecy of Isaiah 9-6 would say that Jesus is the prince of peace. For unto you is a child born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus' peace was different. Yes, he waged war for it, but not with a sword. He waged war by giving his own flesh. He fought a battle with sin, Satan, and death, and his weapon was the cross. His blood was shed. After three days, he left the tomb empty, promising that those who call upon his name would receive the peace that only the Prince of Peace can grant. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Experience joy in this peace to know Savior Christ and Lord. And as one who has received this peace, be a peacemaker to those around you. And how will that peace exist? By declaring the gospel to others. As the passage continues, we see the mission to make known what God has made known. Make known what God has made known. Let's look at verses 15 through 20. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. That's important. We're going to make known what the Lord has made known to us. Verse 16, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now, I wish I could see the shepherds' faces here in verse 15, right? The angel declares these things. A myriad of angels that couldn't even be counted are declaring this good news to them. And then immediately, before their feet had moved an inch, the field that had roared with the sound of angels is now filled with the silent night air again. That bright and blinding light immediately is gone, and it's darkness again. And awestruck, one of the shepherds breaks the silence and says in verse 15, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. Now, what I love here is that the revelation of God, what God revealed to them, produced faith. I want you to see that. I don't read this as the shepherds saying, well, let's go see if that angel was right. Like, I don't think that they are on some kind of fact-checking mission as they mosey over to Bethlehem. I think what they're saying is, God has done this. 
The Savior has been born into the world. Revelation produced faith, and that faith produced action to go. And they said, let us go over to Bethlehem. Because what God makes known through his word was just as real to them as what they could behold with their own eyes. And so in verse 16, we see that they go. The message of the angel is confirmed. Things are exactly as they were told. They see the the baby who is Savior of the world lying in a manger there with Mary and Joseph. And then we read in verses 17 through 18 that afterwards they begin to make known in verse 17 all that had been told them concerning this child. They made known what had been made known to them. Now, think about it. These shepherds were not even able in their society to give testimony in a Jewish court of law, and here they are as God's chosen vessels to proclaim the good news. Whenever I read this, it reminded me of 2 Corinthians 7.4, where Paul says that God has chosen to place the treasure of the gospel, the absolute gold of the gospel, in jars of clay. Right? He didn't need perfect messengers because he was placing within them a perfect message. And the same is true of us. And so they go and they proclaim this good news. Verse 18 says that all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. All who heard it wondered, but not all worshiped. All wondered, but not all worshiped. Isn't that interesting? It's no different from what we see today. Let me ask, are you someone who just wonders at the things of Jesus? Are you a person who worships Jesus as Lord over your life? Take inventory of your heart. Take inventory of your actions. Take inventory of the way that you view your purity, your finances, your decision-making. Do you worship or do you wonder? This might interest you. Uh, 92% of Americans celebrate Christmas. Yes, we would say that's par for the course. We would believe that. Now, What is even a little bit more interesting is that 51% of Americans would say that Christmas is a religious holiday, and that's why they celebrate it. But even more surprising to me was the fact that the majority of Americans affirm the historical legitimacy of the story of Jesus, exactly as it's given in Scripture. Okay, so 73% of Americans believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, 73%. 65 percent of americans believe that jesus was laid in a manger visited by shepherds who were informed by an angel and that he received gifts from wise men that were led by a star if 63 percent of people in america believe that then why are not 63 percent of americans christian because many might wonder at the things of jesus but not all worship jesus because he says come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, right? And I will give you rest. But, but maybe you think that you're better off managing your own life. Maybe, maybe people that you love might know the truths of Christmas, affirm them on a survey, but need you to make known to them what has been made known to you so that they do not just wonder at the truths of this Christmas story, but they worship Christ who is at the center of this story. In verse 19, the shepherds head out into the night, and Mary is there treasuring up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I mean, imagine this moment. Just one verse, but so much is here, right? Where you just kind of want Luke to keep elaborating. 
Like, tell us more, Luke. She carried this baby that the angel told her would be named Jesus because he would come and save his people from their sins. She carries this baby for nine months, and now she's holding this child in her arms. I mean, as a young Jewish girl who would have grown up in the synagogue, how many times would she have heard sermons preached on the coming Messiah who will be born of a virgin in Bethlehem? And now she is holding God's faithfulness to his promises in her own hands. The angel spoke. The shepherds visited. The child is here. And all the pieces are starting to come together. She treasures these things up in her heart. She meditates on it. Exhausted from labor and the journey. Oh, absolutely. But probably overwhelmed with joy as she considers God's faithfulness. And this is, this is a, a small application, but, but find moments that you can treasure Christ, where you can ponder the goodness of Christ in your life by spending time in his word. If you're married, every anniversary, God, thank you. Every, every time you celebrate a birthday, Lord, thank you for one more year of your faithfulness. This year might not have been easy, but praise God. Going into the new year, when you see someone baptized, whenever you get baptized, whenever you hold the bread and the cup in your hands, treasure and ponder the goodness of Christ made known to you. We see in verse 20, the shepherds, they returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Oh man, these guys are filled with joy. But what are they doing? They're going back out to the same field around the same smelly sheep. Circumstances, the way that the society around them viewed them was the exact same. But now, glorifying God, praising Him, rejoicing. What changed? They went back to the same field, but they were not the same. What changed was not their situation, but the revelation of God. They had beheld Christ. And what fuels us with the desire to make Christ known? It is by fixing our focus on the way that Christ makes himself known to us. What great grace is there in the fact that God has revealed himself? The self-revelation of God is not something he was obligated to do and yet did it, most notably through the sending of his son. Uh, there is a, a story about the Russian cosmonaut in 1961. His name was Yuri Gargarin, the, the first Russian cosmonaut to ever go into space. Maybe some of you have heard this story before. Uh, well, shortly after, there was this news brief, and Nikita Khrushchev, who was the first secretary of the Communist Party, said, Gargarin went to space. He searched for God, and he did not find him there. He went to space. Nobody had ever gone there before. Does not God live in the heavens? Right? This is just kind of, you know, paraphrasing, trying to explain what, what he meant by this. Does not God live in the heavens? Didn't see him there. C.S. Lewis was a contemporary of uh, Nikita Khrushchev, and he responded in an essay called The Seeing Eye. And, and he said, the God that exists would not be found in this way. Right? He's, he's not like 
an upstairs tenant in an apartment where you're like, okay, you know, I see the car moved out front. Uh, you know, there's some things that are going on. The mail has been checked. So I'm just assuming that if I walked up the stairs, I would probably bump into someone who is the upstairs tenant, right? C.S. Lewis says, That's, you're not just going to go to space and just see God there. Says, no, the relationship between man and God would be more similar to the relationship that Shakespeare has with Hamlet, right? Because Shakespeare authors the entirety of Hamlet's story. And there is no way for Hamlet to somehow, as a character in this story, to climb out of the theater. He can't climb out of the pages of this script. No, if Hamlet was to know a single detail or fact about Shakespeare, Shakespeare would have to write himself into the story and reveal himself. That is exactly what God has done through the sending of Jesus Christ. The author of our story has written himself into it that we might know him. Better yet, he has made us a part of the eternal story that he has been writing before we breathed our first breath. And that is the grace of God made known to us in Christ that our author entered our world. And as God has made himself known to us, we seek to make known our God to others. That's why as a church, we do things like Operation 1-8. It's why we partner with church plants all throughout the world. It's why we say simple things like, who is close to you but far from God? And what does it look like to bridge that gap this week? Is it just simply saying, hey, how can I be praying for you this week? Is it saying, me and some of my friends are playing pickleball on Friday night. I'd love for you to come. And just a simple invitation that begins to bridge the gap between someone who is close to you but far from God because we desire to make known to others what God has made known to us. Third, the mark. We've looked at the message, we've looked at the mission, and now we look at the mark that defines a Christian. Joy marks those who know Jesus. Every Christmas we sing a song, Joy to the World. It was written in 1719 by Isaac Watts, and it might surprise you that he did not write that song to be a Christmas song. He wrote this song after reflecting on Psalm 98, after reflecting on the coming king who would bring good news to the world. And then he penned these words. I love the third verse because it reveals to us the scope of Christ's work in his coming. Watts wrote, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, because he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found, as far as the curse is found. Jesus, in his first coming, born in a manger, begins his redeeming work. And one day in his second coming, it will be fully inaugurated and he will make all things new. And what Watts wrote after reflecting on Psalm 98 is that there is not one square inch of creation that has been corrupted by sin that, not will, be, that will not be completely restored by the work of Christ when he returns. Yes, the curse has brought a great effect, but Christ has come to reverse the curse of sin as far as the curse is found. There is an image that was drawn by Sister Grace Remington that takes us back to the garden in Genesis 3. It shows Eve standing there still holding the fruit, the forbidden fruit, which, we, which she took a bite of. 
And you can see both sadness, but great hope. Because God gave a promise to the serpent, and he said that there will be one who is one day born of Eve's line. One will come as a human, and he will reverse the curse of sin throughout all creation. And as fictional as this image might be, I love what it communicates, that all the havoc that sin has wreaked, all the racism, all the pain, all the abuse, all the besetting sin within your own flesh will be reversed by the one who was in the womb of Mary. And we will experience the sinful venom from that serpent's fangs no more because the child that would be born of Mary's Savior, Christ the Lord, and he would hang upon the cross to defang that serpent. He would put him to death through his own death and conquering sin and death forever. He will rule in the hearts of all who believe, which is why Isaac Watts writes in the first verse, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing. Has your heart prepared room for the king who brings joy? This is the reality, that those who know Jesus have joy. If that's the case, why don't we always feel it, right? If, if joy is a feeling that comes from the fact that we can enjoy God with a personal relationship with him, why don't we always feel joyful? Here are a couple things that might steal your joy. These are thieves of joy. First is sin. This, this might feel obvious, and no, not every time that you're lacking joy is it the result of sin, but what does, what does David say whenever he repents in Psalm 51, verse 12? He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Why? Because Whenever he had kept sin hidden in his heart, whenever he had cherished sin, joy was lacking. So he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. If there are sinful actions or attitudes in your heart that go unaddressed or unconfessed before the Lord, joy will be fleeting. Second, misplaced confidence will empty you of joy. In Philippians 3.1, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And sometimes we try to draw our joy from empty wells. And sometimes it's, it's good things, it's religious things, it's ministry, right? I want to see fruit in my ministry. I want to see lives changed. Other times it's people, right? We're like, man, I, you know, I love this person, but I feel like they've just kind of let me down lately. Maybe it's, maybe it's the consistency in, in your quiet times or, or whatever. But understand that those were not intended to provide the joy that only Christ can. Whenever Jesus is talking to his di disciples in, in Luke 10, they, you know, they come back and you know, they've been sent out, they've been casting demons out of people, they've been healing diseases, and what does Jesus say? He says, do not rejoice. Don't have joy that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So I hope that your ministry goes well. I hope it thrives, I hope you see fruit. I hope that your daily devotional times fill you with confidence, peace, and hope in the Lord, but rejoice in the fact that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Third, times of spiritual pruning and discipline can be difficult. Hebrews 12 says that the Lord disciplines those that, 
that he loves. So sometimes, I mean, you feel the pain of God redirecting you, right? Like a, like a shepherd who comforts you, yes, but with a rod and a staff. And fourth, joy can be fleeting because we, we face difficulty. We face trials in life. It can be sickness. It can be financial hardship. It can be relational conflict. It can be unforeseen suffering. These moments can, can rob us of joy. And so in those moments, we fix our eyes on the character of God. I mean, think about it. The Red Sea was an obstacle for Moses and the Israelites, and yet Moses experienced the power of God firsthand in a way that he would not have if the Red Sea wasn't there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrust into the fire whenever they are faithful to the Lord. And all that was a trial that I would imagine brought great discomfort in the moment the Lord preserved him, and they were able to witness the fourth man who is God incarnate in their midst because of it. Joy isn't the lack of difficulty. Joy anchors our soul to the Lord in the midst of difficulty, which is why we can count it all joy, my brothers, when we meet trials of various kind, because the testing of the Lord produces steadfastness when our faith is put to the test. So how can we rejoice as the shepherds did on this night? It is in God's word and by being indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Romans 15 13 tells us exactly how we can be full of the joy that was given as great news to these shepherds. Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. How are you filled with joy and peace? It's by believing, it's by hearing the promises of God, receiving the truth of God, and taking God at His word and believing it. I just feel like I'm not experiencing joy. Consider even, even just the passage we've looked at this morning. Believe these things, treasure them, ponder them, store them up in your heart that you may be filled with joy. And the Holy Spirit applies them to you. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Holy Spirit within us produces joy because He is God within us. And the same God that made these truths known to the lowly shepherds makes this truth known to us so that we could declare what Psalm 16:11 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Now reflect on this. These shepherds were located in Bethlehem. They're not far from the temple in Jerusalem. And I would imagine that some of the very same sheep that these shepherds help raise would one day be purchased would one day be led to the temple, that they would be used as a sacrifice for sin. And I would also imagine that these shepherds had witnessed the birth of countless sheep, but this night was different. On this night, they witnessed the birth of the Lamb of God. A Savior was born. The Lamb of God was placed in a crib, but one day he would be placed on a cross so that what John said when he saw Jesus would be true. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. These shepherds had beheld the greater shepherd who was also the Lamb who would give himself for the sins of his people. And the good news of great joy that we receive is that Jesus laid down his life for us. What is your greatest need? It is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And what makes this such good news of great joy is that that is exactly whom God has provided for you. He died 
to take our judgment so that we could have everlasting joy. And this good news corresponds to our greatest need, and God has provided all that we need in Christ. Let's pray.